Well, how you doing again this morning? Good, good to see you once again. And uh, thanks to everybody that came out last night. If you missed it, man, you missed a great party. We had a lot of fun and we were a little surprised. We were planning for this event and the fireworks and stuff. We're like, I don't know, maybe 80, 100 people, hundreds of you came out. <laughs> and so that was awesome. So next time we will have more hot dogs, okay? So if we do this again, uh, but it was a lot of fun just spending the evening together. We baptized nine people, which was awesome. I think we'll show you a video of that in the coming weeks and um, just enjoyed the fireworks and enjoyed celebrating our freedom. Hey, today I, I did, I decided, hey, kind of last minute, but I said, I really would like to talk to the middle schoolers too today. So you can blame me, not Jason for that. Um, I'm speaking to my child. Um, kidding. And I'll see if I can trick any of them or bribe them. If any of you want to come up to the front row, because that's where the really smart people sit, and I know you're really smart, so any of you middle schoolers want to come to the front row, you have a better view, and I won't pick on you, and I'll give you a free cookie afterwards. <laughs> it worked. See, last time Jason said, you need to offer them like a king-size candy bar, because they all get cookies for free. Shh. All right. Well, cool. Well, we are glad you're here. Hey, it is a really crazy time in our country in so many ways. And I just wanted to take a pause. Normally, we, uh, we've been in a verse-by-verse -verse series through the book of Esther for such a time. And don't miss next week. Next week is one of, I think, the, the key moments of this series. So if you got to be gone, if you're traveling, please, please join us online or go back to our podcast and catch up. Don't miss me next week. Um, it's a key moment in the series. But I just want to take a pause because it's not every year that, uh, that church lands on the 4th of July. And I want to talk about faith, and I want to talk about freedom, and I want to talk about virtue, and I want to talk about how those three things intertwine. Because we are seeing in our country just incredible levels of division and animosity. And I know we don't always feel that here in Grand Junction because we kind of live in a bubble compared to a lot of the rest of the world. But unless you have your head in the sand, you know there's incredible division and incredible uh, tension all over our nation over the last year. And I believe that there actually is a spiritual enemy, Satan, who, whose goal it is, like Jesus said, to kill and steal and destroy. And so let me just ask you, if, if that's true, and if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and, and you believe the Bible, you'd say that's true. Do you not think that, that the enemy would have a large target to create division and animosity in the largest freest, most influential nation in the modern world. I think he would. And so I want to talk about some of these things and some of these things that the people who started our country understood and some of the, the reasons why they started our country. And so today we're going to do something a little different. Sometimes we tug on your heartstrings. Um, hopefully we'll, this will in some ways. Um, but this is going to be part history lesson. Can I hear a yay? Kids, those of you that are out of school, you're like, let's go back for a morning. Um, so this is going to be part history lesson and part sermon, but what I need you to do today, we're going to, you know, it says in the Bible, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And today we're going to love God with our mind as we de dig into some of these concepts and some of these um, people that had such a huge role to play in our nation. And so I want to tell you, put your thinking caps on. I know you were watching fireworks last night and up late, some of you, um, 
put your thinking caps on because we're going to move through a lot of stuff here. Okay? Deal? Deal, front row? They're just quiet. They're like, I don't know. You tricked us with the cookie. We're not admitting to anything anymore. All right. Hey, how many of you know what today is? Fourth of July, right? And what we celebrate, what we're commemorating on the fourth of July is the day that our Declaration of Independence was signed. And there's these famous, powerful words um, that have reverberated down through history. They go like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and when it says men, it means all humankind, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governance are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And so, as our founders started this country and, and the Revolutionary War <clears throat> around this time would, would go on, uh, we, we had a, a, a 13 different colonies, right? From the British. We were, we were part of the British Empire. But there was no representation. There was oppression. And so our founders, as they began to look at different governments all around the world, they said they believed in freedom, but they understood some things about freedom. You can't just have no government. No government is anarchy. And you know who always wins in anarchy? Whoever is most powerful, right? Whoever's the strongest. You go throughout history. That's the course of history. And so they understood you need some government. You, you need government, but not too much government, because too much government can cause this oppression all the way around as well. And so they penned these famous words that, that humankind has inalienable rights, which at this time in history, for a nation to, to put this in their founding document was amazing. Humankind has inalienable rights. And they said it's self-evident. Well, throughout most of history, that wasn't self-evident. Most of history, through ancient history, as you go back thousands of years, the, the weak or the powerful preyed on the weak. If you could take advantage of other people, you would. If you could enslave other people, you would. That was the course of humanity. And this was an idea. These ideas that they got didn't just come out of nowhere. When you go back and you look at all the quotes from the early founding fathers, the most, the volume of quotes come from the scriptures. These guys understood the truth in scripture. Remember when we, when we uh, preached through the book of Exodus and it was all about, it begins with, with the big story of God freeing his people from slavery. They understood this. In fact, it was an idea that was deeply rooted in scripture. This idea that all people are created equal and have unalienable rights. Where did they get it? Well, partly from the apostle Paul. In Galatians, here's what he said. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, or all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor there is male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are like mind-blowing words in the, in the first century when these are written. In this time in ancient Rome, where, where children were thought of as property, women weren't thought of much better. The, this idea that there's a bigger ethic that goes beyond the, you know, the might of the emperor, that there's something that goes 
you know, a higher law that you can identify with Jesus, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus. And there's something about being part of the family of God that supersedes all of this and breaks down all racial and all these class system dividing walls. It's a powerful thought. But these are the things that the people who started this nation were reading when they came up with this idea of America. And we don't realize how unique America was because the, the ideas of freedom that we experience, the fact we can come together and worship here freely today, this is a, when you go back through history, we, we just were so used to it. We don't understand how rare this was and how many of the ideas of, of America now have been exported all over the world to the fact that we don't even, you know, see America as anything special. But at the time of our founding, wow, this nation has been an inspiration to so many peoples around the world when it comes to freedom. Now, so on July 4th, the, the founders signed the Declaration of Independence and just a few days later, on the 8th, they carried this declaration outside in, in, uh, in Philadelphia. How many of you have visited the Liberty Bell? Just a few of us. I remember visiting it as a kid. It was pretty cool. But they, they brought the declaration out, and they read it to the crowd that was assembled. And then they rang the Liberty Bell. Do you know why the Liberty Bell is called the Liberty Bell? I'll tell you why. It's because of a quote from Leviticus. It's on the Liberty Bell. Leviticus 25.10. It says, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all inheritance of thereof. Liberty throughout the land. See, so it was the, it was the truth found in scripture that inspired the people who would go on to work against slavery. And inspired the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence. In fact, here's what the great leader of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., would say about these founding documents. He said this, if our nation had done nothing more in its whole history than to create just two documents, its contribution to civilization would be imperishable. The first of these documents is the Declaration of Independence, and the other is that which we are here to honor tonight, the Emancipation Proclamation, where the slaves were freed. All tyrants, past, present, and future, are powerless to bury the truths in these declarations, no matter how extensive their legions, how vast their power, and how malignant their evil. The Declaration of Independence proclaimed to a world organized politically and spiritually around the concept of the inequality of man. See, that's the natural state of the world, right? the inequality of man, that the dignity of the human personality was inherent in a man as a living being. The Emancipation Proclamation was the offspring of the Declaration of Independence. It was a constructive use of force, of the force of law to uproot a social order which sought to separate liberty from a segment of humanity. So he said, the fact that we had, um, you know, a whole southern part of our country that did not recognize the equal status of people and then on into the civil rights movement, you know, the fact that there was still segregation showed us that we were not being true to our own founding documents, to the ideas that the country was founded on. 
He goes on, he says this in another spot. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is Martin Luther King Jr., and he stood for an idea, color blindness, that no matter the color of your skin, we have an equal platform and standing in front of God and an equal worth and an equal value, that humanity should be evaluated on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin. Very different than many ideas that are circulating in our culture today and creating division. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. And some of this comes out of the ideas that our, our founders read. It wasn't just races that were created equal, but classes of people. Like you still, you go to India and parts of the world, and there's a caste system where you have untouchables that, you know, can never rise out of their class in life. And, and this idea comes out of Hinduism and some of the ideas in the Eastern nations, not so in the U.S. See, they read the, the, the words of James, the brother of Jesus, who said this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, if you go back and look at the, the history of early Rome, the words of Paul, the words of James reverberated down, and it created this subversive culture in the early church where there was this equality that all were one in Christ Jesus. And the class divisions that would divide humanity for, for hundreds of years after Jesus, thousands, really, almost thousands, these class divisions that would come, these ideas were counter to scripture and our founders understood that. Do you know when our founders, um, so you hear so many different things about the founding of our nation today. How many of you know who a guy named John Winthrop is? Front row? No? Okay, you're going to learn. Front row here? You guys always know. You have all the answers. Okay, John Winthrop. John Winthrop was amazing. He was the founder of the Massachusetts colony. He was one of the pilgrims one of the very first forefathers of our country. And here's how he saw. You see, when, when the forefathers, you know, there were some that came to the southern colonies and they came for, for financial purposes, but then there was a whole group of people, the pilgrims, we celebrate them every Thanksgiving, that came and founded colonies for this express purpose of being free to worship because the English kings had, were dictating at the time how you would worship, the exact things you would do. It was all political. It was, it was a mess. And they didn't have freedom to worship God in the way they believed that God said they needed to worship him in Scripture. And so as, as they came to form this new colony and really start a new nation here on this continent, here's what John Winthrop, one of the leaders of the first pilgrim colony, here's how he saw their mission. He says, thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into covenant with him for this work. We have taken out a commission. They saw the thing they were doing as they formed this new country as something that, that was a covenant with God. Follow the, 
the counsel of Micah to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. So he's talking about how the community would work and how they would have to care for each other in order to, to found this new nation. For we must consider that we shall be as a city set upon a hill. He, he quotes the words of Jesus. The eyes of all people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. And then he ends this, this agreement with the, with the people on, on uh, this, uh, this ship before they land in Massachusetts. And he says this. He ends it quoting Deuteronomy 30. He said, Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and ordinances and his laws and the article of our covenant with him that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. But if our hearts shall turn away, see, he says, we believe God is blessing this and we're, we're going to covenant with God to live before him in his way. But he's, he gives a warning to the nation of America, but if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey, but we shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasure and our prophets and serve them. It is propunded unto us this day, we shall surely perish out of the good land whither we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Therefore, let us choose life that we and our seed, our forefathers, may live, or our, uh, our descendants may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. So very early on, these are, these are the very first founders of our nation, and not all of them. Some were here for financial purposes, but a lot of them came for the express purpose of living a life, a pure life before God, having the freedom to worship God in the way that they believed God was laying on their hearts, which they could not do. They were persecuted. They could not do that back in Europe at the time. And so they saw this mission as they sailed across, almost as a covenant with God, that God, we're going to live for you. And they understood that if our, if our nation turns its back on you, we can't expect you to continue to bless us. That's, that's the, that was our founders. That's what they thought about this country, the very early founders. Now, this was about, uh, when was that? 1630, um, I believe. This is about 1630, but later, a little over 100 years later, something had happened in, in the U.S. Many hearts had sort of drifted away from God. And then God did, began doing this thing. He began stirring revival in the hearts of his people. And he raised up a bunch of really strong preachers. There was one of them that was named George Whitfield. And he was a famous preacher in, in something that's become known as the Great Awakening which led up to 1776. It was about in the 30 years that were before that. And George Whitfield, he is a cool looking dude, isn't he? <laughs> See, here's what you got to understand, middle schoolers in the room. Like your parents, I know they're not that cool, but we were cool when we were your age. And dude, dude up here, he was cool too, with his little wig all puffed and powdered. Uh, I mean, we see these guys, we're like, oh, old dead guy. Who would dress like that, right? But I'm telling you, these guys were quite stylish in their time. So just keep that in mind before you mock them 
just like before you mock those glasses, your, your mom wore in those pictures, right? I grew up looking at pictures of my mom from the 60s and like bell bottoms and stuff. And then that all came back in like 20 years later, you know? And now I don't know, the 90s are back in. So like the high waist, my wife tells me, cause I don't know these things, right? I'm just like clueless, but she's like, you know, the, the jeans and everything is back in. So that's cool. I should have kept some of my 90s clothes. Huh. I don't think I could fit in them today, so. All right, but anyway, George Whitfield came along. And see, in the years following the pilgrims, many in the country had, had lost touch with their faith. And so what, what happened before and what really, as historians look back, one of the things that paved the way for the United States to break off into its own nation was the Great Awakening. And so George Whitfield, this guy was amazing. As you read the stories, um, Benjamin Franklin said he was such a good preacher that he would like raise money for orphanages and stuff as well as preaching the gospel. And Benjamin Franklin, as he was talking about this guy, he's like, I, I like emptied my pockets out. I wasn't going to give anything or he had a little bit of money in there. And uh, he said, but, but he said he determined ahead of time, he wouldn't give anything. And he, as he was listening to Whitfield, he's like, okay, I'll give a couple pennies. And before he knew it, he was emptying everything he had to give. But Whitfield would preach to like, 15 to 25,000 people at a time. No sound system, no microphones. I mean, think about that. It was amazing. In fact, that's one of the things Franklin talks about is he did like a science experiment to see how far back he could hear this guy. And he's like, wow, it's amazing. You know, there must've been 20,000 people out there. But over and over, this guy preached more. He preached something like 18,000 sermons over 30 years. Nobody's come close to that. Since this guy was amazing. God used him in profound ways. And, and like I said, he's old here because he wasn't famous till he was, or, well, he was famous actually, but you know, they didn't make a painting of him till he was older. He started preaching at 21, guys. When he was like 20, in his early 20s, he came over from England on a ship, thousands of people. He was like the first celebrity. There would never be something so culturally impactful in the U.S. again until the Beatles and Elvis. And those of you who are, you know, a little older in the room might remember them. And so this was, this was amazing. But what made his message so powerful, he would go and he would preach to coal miners. He would preach outdoors. He would preach anywhere he could find. And the, he would preach to the regular people, not just, you know, the stodgy aristocrat kind of people. And his message was the gospel. His message was that we all stand on an equal, we are all sinners but God offers his grace to all of us. And people would be so moved by his preaching, they would break down weeping and crying. They would repent of their sins. And so this was all part of the great awakening. There was this great spiritual awakening that began to happen in the United States, but it didn't just, um, it didn't just affect people's souls. It impacted the unity of the country. Because now, um, because now you had all these people who understood that it doesn't matter about the class or color of skin, that this is about salvation and the gospel. And people began to embrace the message of the gospel. And the United States, the colonies became united as never before. And, and scholars that go back, they say, well, this is the thing that actually set the stage for the independence of the nation. If it hadn't been for this, they wouldn't have bonded together and come together in unity. And so you have, when, when the Revolutionary War began, the war against Britain, man, there, it looked like there was no chance the United States would win. I mean, we were so overpowered by the British Empire and the British 
army. The first battles went really poorly. It looked like the United States as they struggled to create this new nation where there'd be freedom and equality, where humanity could, could try this experiment called self-governance, where you didn't have a king. These were like revolutionary thoughts at the time. And nobody thought that America could win. In fact, a, uh, a doctor asked our second president, who at the time was a big deal, John Adams. He's like, man, can you think, do you think America can actually win? And Adams replied this, yes, if we fear God and repent of our sins. See, they had this idea that God is actually in this. Washington talk, talked all the time about how God preserved his life. In fact, there was a, a famous battle earlier than this where the, the Indian tribes, uh, the battle when the French were battling the, uh, the British army and some of the Minutemen were helping, which were the, the, the United States guys. And Washington was riding his horse and specifically the Indian brave who said he never missed the chief, he instructed his people to gun them down. And after about missing Washington 17 times, he concluded that he must be protected by the, the great spirit. And he told them to stop fighting. And Washington went back and said, there's the only reason I'm alive is because of God. He saw God specifically in that. And so as the founders founded this nation, they saw the hand of God in it, the blessing of God, just like the pilgrims did. Listen, listen to George Washington's um, inaugural address. This is in New York, actually on, on uh, Manhattan. On the very first day when they chose Washington as the first president, here's what he says. Here's his own words. It would be peculiarly, excuse me, imp improper, that's a hard word, to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect. And he goes on, right? What is he saying? It would be, if I miss acknowledging God in this first address I give, he said, I would be remiss, right? He says, in tendering this homage, this prayer to or recognition to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself that it expresses your sentiments, the sentiments of the leaders of the country, not less than my own, nor those of my fellow citizens of large. In, in other words, this is the way that everybody's thinking at this time, that we're all acknowledging God, or most, the majority no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. He saw God's hand in a powerful way. There exists in the economy and the course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage. Listen to his warning to the nation of America. Since we ought be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles, I love this phrase, of heaven, God's favor, can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. And that since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government. What form of government do we have from the front row? A republic. Yes. Are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. See, here's something, and this is a big concept, and I want to teach you 
something that has been made popular by a modern day scholar. His name is Oz Guinness. And here's what he understood. Here's how he described when you look at the majority, not all, but the majority of the people that founded this nation. Here, here's how they thought of, of the interplay between these things. It, he calls it the golden triangle of freedom. And it goes like this. And I didn't draw a uh, triangle. But if you imagine a triangle. And they're all dependent on each other. He says freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And faith requires freedom. And then these things all sort of circle around together and, and, and continue to create these things. This is interesting because right after, the, uh, right after the Constitution was ratified by the founders, Benjamin Franklin, 81 years old, the oldest guy, he came out. And when somebody, this, this lady, uh, we're told in history, looks at him and goes, what do we have? We have a republic. We have a monarchy. What, what kind of form of government did you guys give us? And he looks at her and he says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. See, they understood something about freedom. That freedom is not the natural state of humanity. That the natural state of history is for, for governments, for the strong to abuse the weak, for governments to descend into tyranny. And so they understood this is a fragile experiment and it depends on the hearts of the people involved whether this will fly or not. In fact, Franklin said this. He says, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. This is the first part. Freedom requires virtue. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. What is virtue? It's the ability to to internally be a, decide you're going to do what is right. You're going to follow God in your life. Another famous historian said this, that liberty cannot be established without morality, nor faith, nor without faith. See, they understood these things were tied together, right? Franklin again said, as nations be, become corrupt and vicious or full of vices, sins, they have more need of masters. In other words, he's saying freedom requires virtue. Like for freedom to last, it requires the people who self-regulate themselves. Sounds a lot like Colossians 3. It says this, here there is no Jew or Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And because of that, the fact that we're all equal before for God, he says here, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See, Adam said this, that the only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. He understood that, that you, you can't regulate that people will follow God. It takes a heart of people saying, we're going to follow God. We're going to do what's right. We're going to choose to on our own accord. In fact, a famous French historian came to, came to America in 1831 
And this is a quote that was misattributed to him. But here's, here's a quote that describes his research. He said this, Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pul pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. See, the founders understood that the secret to American freedom was American virtue. Adams would say this, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And I think if you want to see what's gone wrong in so many ways, is that so many hearts have decided that there is no God in our nation that they are accountable to. That freedom means doing whatever I want. And the, and the founders would go, no, freedom actually is dependent on people saying, I'm not going to do everything that I want. Tocqueville writes this, while the law permits the Americans to do what they please, religion prevents them from conceiving and forbids them to commit what is rash or unjust. A lot of people that are walking with the Spirit. Sounds like what Paul says in Galatians. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. A people who has given their hearts to follow Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and who walk by the Holy Spirit, being sanctified by him. What does that big word mean? It means you get up in the morning, and, and you go, Holy Spirit, convict me today. Lead me. Guide me. And then you respond as he taps you on the shoulder, and he goes, hey, you shouldn't have acted like that. Hey, you were a jerk. You need to go apologize to your wife. Hey, hey. That was a disrespectful thing towards your parents. Why don't you go say you're sorry and change that behavior? When that comes from within, with in, internally, that's called walking by the Spirit. And it's a process. It's not just some magic thing that happens overnight when you accept Jesus all of a sudden. I mean, sometimes God radically saves people and frees them from an addiction or frees them from an area of life. Um, and that happens. That's many people's story, but many people's story also is, man, I struggled with this thing for years, and I just kept repenting, and I kept turning back to God, and finally God delivered me and freed. There's a cooperation in walking with the Spirit that you have to decide. I am going to say yes to the Holy Spirit, which means saying yes to what's written in Scripture, and I'm going to choose to walk the way that he says. It's called sanctification, big theological word, right? He says this, so I say, walk by the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And see, what the founders understood is, is that for a people whose hearts were prepared by the great awakening and who had raised Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and their lives began changing. Franklin saw this, like Whitfield. He, Franklin, we don't believe, was a devout follower of Jesus. But man, he was really for, for Whitfield, the preacher. And he saw as, as these coal miners and all these roughnecks started accepting Jesus, their lives started changing. Their lives were transformed. And so he actually promoted the work of Whitfield because of that. They understood that, that a country that would be free is dependent on a people who will walk by the Spirit and regulate, self-govern themselves, right? If you want to be a good leader, the first thing you have to do is lead yourself. You understood that. In fact, George Washington said this. He said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Let's not think that, you know, without faith, we're just going to have a bunch of really good people out there. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principles. Even Jefferson, who, who many people think is a deist, he held actually um, positions very pro-faith. He wrote this in, in 1785. Can the liberties of a nation thought to be secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of people that those liberties are a gift from God? I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justness cannot sleep forever. In other words, on the 4th of July, let me, let me just put it this way. The most patriotic thing you can do is to follow God with all your heart. And live your life that way. To walk with the Holy Spirit. So faith. Faith. Um, freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And faith requires freedom. And here's what that meant. The pilgrims understood this. Since they came to the shores of our country in 1620, they understood religion had to be free. That faith had to be free. And see, none of you are here now. Maybe you were here because, you know, somebody cute promised you lunch afterwards, said they'd go watch the fireworks with you. I don't know. Um, said they'll buy you lunch. Your mom drug you here. Okay. But nobody can make you follow Jesus. And see, in a time where, you know, there was a king in England who dictated not just, you know, exactly what you believe, but where you worship and how you worship. And literally... Um, I'm watching this series. Um, King Henry VIII burned people at the stake for heresies this time. I mean, they burnt people alive just for having a different opinion on theology. They forced, in fact, he took over as head of the Church of England. Why? Because he wanted to divorce his wife and marry his mistress. True story, right? That's the foundation of the, uh, the Church of England. Now, the Church of England has gone on to do some, some wonderful things. But what our founders understood is faith has to be free. That's why we're free to gather here. And you notice right down the road, there's, you know, a Methodist church um, gathering. And, you know, you go down the road a little more, there's a Baptist church. And there's, that, that's a very interesting thing. And that was a very unique thing in the early stages of our country, now more common around the world. Because they understood that faith has to be free. You have to freely choose to follow God. 
And so, all of this, the great awakening, these, these hearts of people in America following God, it led to the foundation of our nation. Now, here's what I know about our nation. We have plenty of things. How many of you, there's a movie called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? I, I think I saw it like once when I was a kid. All I remember is my friend and I used to like whistle the tune. And when we were in middle school, um, we had this youth camp thing and we would uh, hike up Serpent's Trail on the monument every morning for this like youth camp training. And we would whistle. And I don't know why we did this. We were in middle school. Uh, but we pretend we were cracking the whips and driving the mules up the trail. We were in middle school. <laughs> you were smarter than us, so. But we have the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that is true in our nation as well, right? And so here's what you have, and, and, and here's the interesting thing. It is, I think, out of a reaction many times to the fact that, that the country um, talked about all the positive things and, you know, patriotism around the fourth and all that, and that's wonderful stuff, but brushed aside some of the bad and the ugly, the pendulum has swung. And in many places of the nation right now, even to say you're a patriot, I, I mean, it's kind of a crazy time we're living in, right? When Olympic athletes won't even, like, face the flag. You see football teams. I mean, there's all this tension around all this. And if you ask them, they'd say, we're standing up against injustice. And so part of the country's angry about this. Part of the country's angry about that. Lots of division, right? But it's true, as a nation, we need to embrace the fact that there's good, there's bad, and there's ugly, right? And some of the bad and the ugly, obviously, was slavery in our nation. You know, the scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I want to guarantee you, you want to find out what the root of so many evils is, you know? Whether it was um, tobacco companies, after they knew the science didn't show it, saying, it's healthy, right? Um, follow the money. Follow the money. Who's benefiting? Where does the money come from? The, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And slavery in America was one of those. And you have, you have the African slaves um, being forced in, into subjugated labor in the southern colonies. And that was ugly. It was an ugly mark on our country. It, it went on even after... The freeing of the slaves, there was, there was in our nation racial prejudice and segregation. There was the KKK, all these things. Jim Crow. Awful things, things that run counter to Scripture. That sometimes people who claim to follow Jesus twisted Scripture to support. You have things like, that, that haven't been, weren't talked about much in history until recently. Things like the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. When, when blocks of, of homes for people of color were destroyed, many people were killed. And it's cool because there's this, this preacher named uh, uh, Todd White, I believe, and uh, he's, he's right in the heart of where that happens. He's got this awesome church full of people from every color following Jesus. Bringing unity again. But you know, that's the bad, that's the ugly. And we've, we've heard a lot about that recently in our country. But you know, there's a ton of good as well. 
See, because what you hear of in much history today focuses on what was happening in a few of the black colonies. Now, there were some people in the, in, in the southern, uh, excuse me, the southern colonies when it, when it related to black slavery. But there were people in the north. You know, Massachusetts was one of the, the early states to move against the founding, to move against slavery, to forbid slavery, to actually send the first shipment of slaves. They actually arrested the people and freed the slaves. It was never legal there. And so there's this mixed story. Some of it's bad, some of it's ugly, and most of it is that's what you're hearing these days. But there's a lot of good, too. There's a lot of early black heroes. The Reverend Harry Hoosier. Anybody heard of the Hoosier State? Indiana. Named after a great awakening preacher. Again, young guy, went out, powerful, powerful preacher, led many people to Jesus, the Hoosier State. Mascot, named after him. How about Reverend Lemuel Haynes? He, he, was, he served, this is in the time of our founding. He served white congregations as their pastor for 30 years. Mixed race congregations. Why don't you hear about this stuff in history? You've got guys like James Armistead, a great spy during the Revolutionary War. That worked on behalf of the country and helped us win the Revolutionary War. Amazing hero of history. In fact, there was a whole history book that was written in the uh, 1850s that was published called Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, all about black heroes. But you don't hear about that so much. You don't hear about the racial reconciliation that was going on in the North, even as some of the colonies in the South, motivated by the love of money, hung on to, the, hung on to slavery, worked against or, or worked for the for slavery, right? You know, the majority of the founders of this nation were against slavery. You hear about ones that weren't? Yes, that's true as well. But the majority were by a, by a pretty wide margin. The early American Christians were at the forefront of freedom when it comes to slavery. Do you know the earliest anti-slavery society in the world was founded in the US by Quakers? Benjamin Franklin would later become their president. The state of Vermont was the first state in the world to ban slavery in the year 1777. And even though their home state was pro-slavery, both Washington and Jefferson were fundamentally opposed to slavery. But they're slave owners. Yeah, go back and read the history. It was complicated. And see, that's the thing when it comes to history. There's a lot of complicated things. There was good, there was bad, and there was ugly. But in so much of the cultural di uh, dialogue today, what you're hearing is the bad and the ugly. And it's just a fraction of the picture. You know, Jefferson signed one of the earliest bills banning the slave trade. It would take 60 years in a bloody war in which 623,000 lives were lost to end slavery. In fact, Jeff, or, uh, Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, who's crazy in this last year, the statue was torn down. What? How does that make sense? Lincoln. He saw slavery as, in the Civil War as a judgment from God. He called a national day of prayer and fasting, which coincidentally in the days directly following that national day of prayer and fasting was when the Civil War turned. America would look wildly different had it gone another way. 
See, in the, the, the history of the 19th and 20th century, as many nations of the world were working to end slavery, racism, and oppression out of 124 nations at the time, I believe, the U.S. was the fourth nation in the world to completely ban slavery. You know, the last nation wasn't until 1981. But still, there's, there's millions of people, 40 million people estimated around the world to be in some form of slavery through trafficking, indentured service. Still happening lots of places around the world. There's some wonderful organizations that are working against it. Uh, one of them, Outpour Movement, our friends, the Wards Outpour Movement, is working against that kind of trafficking on the border of Thailand and Myanmar, right? There's something called the 1619 Project. Again, I want to talk about focusing on only the bad and the ugly. The 1619 Project that, that is really tied in, and I'm going to post uh, by this afternoon, uh, let's say 2 o'clock, you can go to our website, lifegj.org forward slash resources. And I'm going to post a link there to a fantastic talk that especially if you're in college or high school right now, you really need to, to, to listen to, to understand. When you hear this term, critical race theory, what does that mean? What does it mean? What are the roots and foundations? There's a great talk by a guy. He's, he's not even a, uh, a politically conservative. But he really gives you a deep dive into what this means and why so many people from all kinds of different political affiliations are coming together to say, this is divisive and has no place in America. But they basically, the idea behind this is the 1619 Project. It challenges us to reframe US history by marking the year when the first enslaved Africans arrived on Virginia's soil as our nation's foundational date. And so it's, it's, a, it's an effort to go back and say, actually, this nation was founded on principles of, of slavery. It was all about oppression. That was the whole foundation. Why do you think statues all over this nation over the last year have been going, toppling? It's this idea that it was all oppression. And see, it's a classic example of only looking at the, the bad and the ugly while ignoring a ton of good. A ton of good. You see, and here's, here's what our founders understood. Here's the truth of the gospel. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. understood. That the gospel is the message that is the foundation of freedom. That you and I stand on an equal platform that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we stand on an equal platform before God as sinners in need of his grace. But the beauty is we have his forgiveness. And we can turn around and move towards him. And that, that gospel message, when we embrace that, that brings unity. It brings unity in our nation. And so as a Christian, what, you know, as you celebrate today, and hopefully you're feeling feelings of patriotism, it's a good thing to love your country. We have a lot in our country to be proud of. A lot that we can celebrate. Freedom. But we also have a nation that's really largely turning away from God and abandoning his principles. And so as Christians, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think the first thing to remember is this. Paul would say, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ.
You know, throughout the scriptures, you see that we're called to work for the blessing of the nation we're in. You see that? The people of Israel, even in exile in Babylon. Because what? Because if they prosper, you're going to prosper. Pray for them. Work for the blessing of the nation you're in. But understand, you have a deeper allegiance. Seek first his kingdom. Your first and primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is in heaven. So no matter what happens in this country, now I think you should love it, and I think you should work hard to preserve its freedom and liberty. And the number one way you can do that is personally walking with the Holy Spirit. Dealing with your stuff. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, heal their land. I think if every person in every church in America began to say, Holy Spirit, wow, I think my life is way off course. I want to repent. I want to turn to you. I want to walk with you, man. I think it would transform our nation if we began to pray. We work for the blessing of the nation we're in. Pray for the nation. But remember, your citizenship is in heaven. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to close with a song. And as they come up, I just want to remind you, the most important thing I think to remember when it comes to looking at a nation is this, that, that we know no matter what happens with the future of our nation, we know that Jesus is coming again. And that's where our hope is found. Revelation 21.1, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Would you stand? And so as we remember and celebrate our nation, the birthday of our nation today, I want to first remind you that you are part of a kingdom that will never end if you're a follower of Jesus. And so hold that in your heart. Let's celebrate that. And let's work for the good of the nation we live in. Let's embrace the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's remember personally to walk with his spirit, to allow him to sanctify and change us. Because that's where it starts, with you and me. Our lives following Jesus. And let's celebrate the fact that he's coming again. And no matter how dark it gets in this world, he proved when he died and rose again. He proved it and he's coming again. And you can embrace what he did for you here today. Put your hope in him, not in a nation. It's great to enjoy the freedom of a nation, but put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Let me just lead us in a prayer. And I want to give you the opportunity to respond. Maybe it's somebody in the crowd here. Maybe it's somebody joining us online. That you've never taken that moment to embrace what Jesus did for you for the first time.
You can pray a simple prayer like this right after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I believe you're the son of God, that you died and rose again. I want to follow you with my life. I put my faith and trust fully in you. Forgive me of my sin. I want to live my life for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me live a life that honors you. If you prayed that, you are part of the family of God. Let's sing this song. Let's celebrate Jesus. I'll come back up and bless you and send you out.